name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, one God, amen. So I'm going to try and move faster today because today's and tomorrow's are longer and then the last one's shorter. And I don't want you guys to be bored or feel like you're suffering at my voice. Um, part of the reason of, of doing the same part of it on first um, is because I hope that by the end of the life of Pope Krullus that you have a already been meditating on but also be asking how do we do it um, like what what does it look like because I think sometimes when we talk about things like prayer or we talk about um, spiritual discipline or fasting etc um, we view it as random actions and if we view it as random act actions then we don't actually know what it looks like um, I'm so ADD. Um, we don't know what it looks like in, in practice afterwards. So anyways, uh, once the deacons are done being deacons. So we left off yesterday with Aizer finally getting permission to leave for the monastery from uh, Metropolitan Uennis, um, as we said, who's going to become Pope at some point in the story. And so we've also seen that nothing for Aizer was easy. Like those were things that we talked about yesterday. It's not like he had a, a piece of cake life. He lost his mom. He's moving around. Revolution, rebellion, lots of no's, um, many things. So he finally got permission to go to the monastery. Thanks, guys. But he didn't get to leave for the monastery right away. I don't think people realize it was hard to get physically to the monasteries in those days. Um, so you used to have to find out who's going and when. There's not a paved road. It's, 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 it's a bit of, a, of a, a journey. So while waiting to go to the monastery, he now is going to spend the apostles' fast in the church. So this is how serious Isaac was. That even though like, like he, he wasn't leaving for the monastery tomorrow, he treated it like he went to the monastery that day. So he left the house and he started staying only at the church, right? So he moved out right away um, and spent the whole apostles' fast physically living inside the church. Um, and any monks, remember we talked about how the monks used to come to the area to get um, donations for the monastery? He would be interviewing them, anybody who came. Um, he's like a little kid excited about his new profession. Um, and so he'd be interviewing them about the lives of the saints, and, and, and he said so in his own words. He's, he wrote it. There's a period where it seems like he was asked to write a, an autobiographical section. So there's a certain amount of autobiography we have from, from Pope Krundos that's incomplete, and he stopped it at some point. But in his own words, he said, I, would, I was using that time to meet many of the monks. I sat with them. I listened to the stories of their own lives, as well as the lives of the saints. So I loved them, right? He, he immediately began to love those that he's going to be with. And he said he started to borrow from the church whatever few books that they had of the history of the saints, wanting, um, aspiring to be like them and dedicated to the church. But the church at this time was in a very dark place, right? And we're going to talk more about that as we go through his life. But the church was not in a good place back then. And so what Isaac is reading about 
looked nothing like reality, right? Like he's reading the stories of these saints, but the life, the world that he's living in didn't look like what he was reading, right? Which is an important detail as we see how he reacts. Um, And the scene of his departure towards the monastery, I think, becomes a symbol of what his what his papacy would look like, the Pope who's a doorman, right? The Pope who's a beweb, right? Like, I actually think that's, that's what Pope Carlos was. He was a beweb um, and loved it. Um, so it was the feast of Archangel Michael on the day that he's leaving, and he's ecstatic um, at, le- at leaving. So he arrives at St. Mark's, grinning ear to ear. He's dressed in his finest suit, but because it's Aid. Uh, in Melek, it's the Feast of the Archangel. What do we do on Feast of Archangel? Everybody makes Fitzir Melek, right? So he's coming wearing his best suit, and he's got a basket of Fitzir Melek on his shoulder that's dripping oil all over him. Like, this one gets the perfect image of what he's like as Pope, right? Where he's got the, the dignity and prestige of the office and couldn't care less about it, right? Because socially, this was so unacceptable that he's A, the one carrying it. B, that there's oil all over it. Like, this is an era where class and, and riches made a difference, and he couldn't care less. Um, it was scandalous, really, for the middle class. So he was both unbothered, unbothered and cheerfully remarked, if the disciples, and again, I'm, I'm bringing some of these quotes to realize how biblical Pope Carlos was in his speech. He was like, if the disciples were happy to carry the remaining fragments that we read in the Gospel reading the Igbeya, right, that the remain, they took up in, in however many baskets, he goes, who am I? I'm carrying a basket of Fitir Melek. Um, I'm no better than them. So MBU Ennis had sent one of the monks, Abuna Bishara, to take him to the monastery. Um, and apparently, he told, MBU Ennis told Abuna Bishara, hang on to his stuff because this kid's not going to make it. Right? So don't get rid of his clothes, don't get rid of his stuff because chances are he's not going to last. Um, which again is so typical of Pope Crotus that nobody thinks that highly of him. Right? Nobody has expectations that he's going to make it. Um, his family and even a representative from work <laughs> came to send him off, um, which he probably was very bothered by because he had just wanted to disappear. Um, and he would write that this was the happiest day of his life. Um, so this is his account of the journey. He, got, he says at four in the afternoon, they got on, a, on an old train um, from Al-Hukareya. Um, and he says, I was amazed at the look of the train and this is funny because you can see some of Pokoros' personality come out in his writings, the way that he, he, that he talks. He says, the, looked, the train looked ancient like it came from the days of Noah. Um, and so like, just like, imagining Pokoros' joke in this way gives us a little bit of insight into what he was like because the pictures look like he's scary. Um, but apparently he joked. Um, they got uh, to Al-Hukareya at 10 p.m. Um, when they got off of the train... Aizer saw the conductor and asked why he wasn't wearing a tarbush, the fez. Um, and the conductor said that he couldn't afford one, so he happily gives him his. Moments later, another guy that he meets didn't have a suit jacket, so Aizer gives him. Um, and then another person he runs into um, that looked poor, Aizer is like, don't worry, I'll send you my shirt and trousers because I won't need them soon. Um, and he really did. Um, and so Bunabishara couldn't keep on holding on to his stuff because it was gone um, before he could do anything about it. Um, so they arrive and he walks through an endless mountain, he says. And while walking, he says, I was looking around for the monastery. He's never been there. 
And after an hour and 15 minutes, we saw from afar a glimpse of light coming from the top of the mountain. I was so peaceful, and God knows that I had never felt that comfort before. Right? This is the those first moments that are implanted in his mind. Any of you who haven't seen it, the beauty of nature, the beauty of the desert, um, anyone who's not experienced this needs to. Um, there's a joy in the physical walk, um, in the hardships of going to the monastery. I know that for me, my retreats to St. Anthony's in Egypt, I hated when I got ordained a priest because I would get a ride there um, because they don't like priests taking public transit in Egypt. But I enjoyed the hardship of having to take a bus having to wave down a car, get on top of Arabeit and Maya, the money thing, wait at Ilmadet like for like hours. For There's a different feeling when you've had to labor for something. Um, and so this is what he's doing. He's had to walk all this time in the desert. Um, so he finds himself in front of the door, and the father pointed to a very small door compared to this gigantic building. Um, it was a solid iron door of two meters height, one meter width, um, at the top end of the door was a bell. So whoever arrived in the monastery would ring it, then the priest responsible for the door would come, and through a window overlooking the door would see the visitor, and then they'd open. So when he arrives, all of the monks come out of their cells. They greeted and led them to the, the, us, the palace. It's a room um, prepared for the guests. Um, it was two, he calls it a two-story luxury palace because it was two stories. Um, the ground floor had four rooms, another four on the top floor that were well furnished. We waited in a room in the ground floor ready for dinner. Then they brought some water and everyone participated in washing our feet. So there's a very strong monastic custom when you have a visitor that's come and they've walked for a long way that the first thing you do is wash their feet. Um, the younger monks and the elders. Isaiah writes, we were ashamed, right? It was like, how could these monks wash our feet? But they informed us that it was a very old custom since the early fathers. Keep in mind, like this all sounds great, but what we're going to find out is that this was an accident, but we'll get there. We were served dinner and thanked God. After a little while, they took us to the top floor to sleep, and we slept calmly and peacefully. Um, this is the behavior just to have in mind. Like Isaac watches, learns, and soon to be Bunamina. These are the behaviors that Bunamina himself would do to others as well. Um, and that he'd also do as Pope Krulus in his own way. Um, so Isaac was received as a guest, and he spent the night in this guest house that he described. But the issue is that they thought he was a visitor, not a new novice. So this was all a blooper. Um, so when they realized that there was a mistake, he's not a visitor, he's come there to live, they rung the bell again, and everyone had to come out again and be like, no, he's a novice, um, because now they need to meet the potential new member. But he had being in this wrong room because they're like, oh, he's sent by the Pope, he must be important. Um, so let's get him the good food, let's hook him up. Um, they would not have done that knowing he was a novice um, because what you do to a novice is talainu. Um, so he was there for a few days until they could find a place for him. And so they, the abbot took him to where the bread was kept and left him, bounced. Um, and so Isaac recalls his cell and he says it was a cell in a 150-year-old building that had two rooms, an outer room and an inner one called the Hermitage or Mahabesa. Um, he cleaned it, organized it, um, hung some icons, brought in his andil, like a, vid a vigil lamp um, that he brought with him, which I'll, I'll, I'll on that point after. 
um, and made it beautiful. The cell was decrepit, old, deserted, but Isaac made it into his cell. He scrubbed the grounds, he resealed the floors, um, uh, he used his suitcase as his table, um, and he finally wore the black galabaya he'd been wearing his whole life, but feeling like he's home. He attended daily praises and didn't linger after with other monks, and he was already starting to function as a hermit, which is extremely unusual, okay? Um, he's left entirely alone, and that is not normal. A novice is supposed to be, they're worried about a novice going crazy when they come, um, for many good reasons. But um, the idea is don't let them be alone. Don't let them be alone with their thoughts, right? Keep them extremely busy. It's, it's, it's a big no-no for a, a newbie to be left alone. But Isaac has no problem, because he's been already doing that his whole life. Um, like we said, for him, this is just change of location. So nothing bothers him. He doesn't have any requests. Um, so apparently, Abuna Bishara felt badly about this because it was not normal. And he went to talk to the abbot about it, saying, hey, like, no one's talking to the new kid. Um, and the abbot said, leave him alone and expressed that he doubted Isaac would last a week um, in solitude and would probably leave. Um, and it might have been because of the wealth and knowledge from which Iser came, right? Um, but Iser had no problem um, and didn't open his mouth, story of his life. Um, a group of monks came with the abbot a weekish later to finally check in on him, and they found the cell restored, frugal, but beautiful. Um, and one of the fathers called it uh, the Temple of Jerusalem um, and nicknamed it that. Um, Aizer gave them all the matanya, he prostrated himself before them. Uh, and one of them was Abu Abdul Masih al Mas'udi, who is a famous character unto um, himself from those days. Abu Abdul Masih immediately after seeing this just said to him, You are a gift from God and you're going to be my son. Um, that's not normal, right? Like people don't declare themselves fathers to people. Um, that's not the custom. So it seems to me there was some spiritual communication um, going on between them because again it's not it's not the normal was a G um, he was not normal for the monks of the time either um, he knew English French Hebrew Arabic Coptic Greek Syriac and the different dialects of Ethiopian languages um, he wrote profusely from histories of monasteries to psychological method handbooks. Um, he wrote an Arabic grammar book that actually was used for Azhar. Um, like, like he's not like, you're a standard guy. Um, I, I could write I could, about his CV, but he's not the subject of our discussion. But that might also add something to of why he was excited about Aizir, right, um, as, for discipling. So he would actually be a spiritual father to Aizir, but not his father confession. Um, so Isaac would have two, soon to be one Amina, but not yet. Isaac was obedient, he was meek, and he took on very unpleasant tasks. One of them was serving the elderly monks. He washed their clothes, cleaned their cells, prepared their meals. I, I, everybody likes to say, take the blessings of the elders, like, I think what people understand is that it's because it sucks. Um, elders aren't usually nice. Um, so when we say it, like, it sounds really sweet, but it's not. They're... they're Older, they're usually very angry. Usually whatever you do isn't good enough. 
right? You finish one thing, they're asking for the next thing, and whatever you did isn't good enough. And then you're working with them nonstop, but then another father will come in like, oh, Habibi, right? And they're like, they look really good. You're like, what about me? Um, and so it's not an easy task. So I just don't want it to be, oh, he served the elders as this remark in passing, like, oh, yeah, 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 it, it, it sucks. Um, and he did it happily. But he didn't chill with them, right? He would do what was needed to be done, and he'd go back to his place. Um, and and I'm, I wonder if this was the beginning of his own living of the love all and be distant from all, which will, he took from Isaac the Syrian, but I think he was already living that way. Um, he was also the one in charge of the kitchen, which is every new novice's task, and it's really fun. Um, and this was harder back then than now, because there was no tech, right? We have dishwashers now, we have a lot of things that can help us, but back then, you had to wash, you had to find resources, you had to light fires because you're gonna cook over a fire, you had to clean the copper pots and repair the stoves, then you had to heat the water tanks to get the water to the monks, grind the grain to make the food, right, or the urban, like it wasn't like you got like a fridge and you just pull the stuff out and make it, it was, no, you're really making it from scratch. Right, So this in itself takes hours upon hours and is extremely physically laborious. And then you've got to make the Urban in time for liturgy. It's, it just sucked. And because he's the new guy, new guy gets to do everything. right? And so it's like, oh, I'm on Isaac. Right? Take it away, kid. Um, he was offered to go study in the world. This speaks, again, highly of his character. He refused. Right? Like that would have been appealing. Like after seeing what the lifestyle was like, many sound minded people would have been like, Yeah, I think I should go study for a bit. Right? Just as their vacation, right? From the hardship. Other like, no thanks. Not interested. He knew what he was here for, what he wanted, he was not interested. Um, another point, because again, people are regularly going to Alexandria, like, hey, do you want to send any messages to your family? And he's like, No. And again, his answers are always biblical. Joseph didn't send a letter to his father when he called him to come to Egypt. He said to his brothers, go tell my father what your eyes have seen and what your ears have heard. And I, the meek, do the same. I ask the traveling fathers to tell my family of the blessings God has given me through the prayers of, of my fathers. Right? It was nice and sound. And it's here that we start seeing the hint of the future wonder worker that would be Pope Krodos that you've all heard of. Um, Interesting to see when it happens, only because I think we think that miracles and stuff are like Harry Potter style, um, where you just pull it out and say the right things and it, and it does it. Whereas these are more of a, a, a grace upon grace as almost a, a synergy between God and man when man is seeking to the life of holiness. And it's the story of this lost mule. So there's a mule that they have, and this, is, this story was also partially the beginning of Pope Crotus's hardships um, because he would end up basically being kicked out of this monastery. Um, but he's lost a mule. To the monastery is actually, is this when I switch to the back up? Okay, we're better. Um, the mule is a big deal to the monastery. It's not just because they're obsessed with donkeys. Um, they don't have much, right? So a mule is an important tool, vessel, everything. It's not, it's not a small thing. Um, 
So they lose the mule, and Abuna Armenius was the monk who lost him, and the elder monk loses it. Right? He's like throwing a hissy fit um, and losing it on everybody, and he's, he's all heck has broken loose. So Isaac speaks up um, because of the tension, and he just says simply, You know, inshallah, and God willing, one of the Bedouins will bring it. And you know what? If they don't, I'll, I'll cover the cost. I'll find a way. I'll, I'll pay for the mule. We'll get another mule. Just to what he doesn't want discord, right? They couldn't calm the Abuna down, um, and everyone's going nuts. But while they're arguing, the monastery bell rings that there's somebody at the door, and lo and behold, it's a Bedouin asking if anybody lost their mule. Um, it's not clear here whether the miracle is that um, Isaac knew that that was going to happen or whether God responded because Isaac said it. Could be either, right? Um, so nine months after his novitiate, it was time for him to be born formally into monasticism and there was a unanimous agreement about his nomination. That's, that's an achievement. So like to get them all to agree on something is already a big deal, right? There's always somebody annoyed at something in every community where everybody would falsifu. They're like, I don't know, you know, maybe, um, and come up with stuff. So the fact that all of them said yes says something very deep about Isaac, right? That he's a character that they can all agree on. It reminds me of St. Anthony the Great, the best saint, um, where, where Athanasius describes him as a bee, Right, how he takes the good from everybody, but Athanasius like points out that the way that Antony did this was so good that everyone loved him. Right, like there's there's people who if they take from everybody, they get pretentious or they get irritating. Right, whereas just like yeah, whatever that guy. Right, whereas he did it in a way that they all loved him. That Athanasius they called him God beloved. Right? So Isaac seems to have had this quality that even though he's not mingling with them all, even though he's not chilling with them all, which, had, which could have made people edgy, right? Of being like, why doesn't he like us? Why doesn't he? They saw something different in him enough that they were saying, no, this guy, this guy is right. Um, so on February 25th, 1928, at the age of 26, um, he became a monk in front of the 30 monks and he broke down in tears. The fathers argued over what to name him. He didn't get to choose. And this is where the relationship between the Blessed Marimina came through. They eventually decided to name him after the saint of the day, which was Saint Mina the monk. Um, and with the funeral prayers, Azar died and Mina Ilbaramusi was born. And at his tonsuring, a monk had taken a vow of silence. Um, so he was a monk who didn't speak, he doesn't utter a word, he doesn't open his mouth. Again, this is this, these external signs that something's different about Heiser. That this monk who never talks decides that's the day he's going to talk. Um, he broke his silence that day and said, May God's blessings be with you. May he grant you his grace and pave your path so that you will be successful in all you do. May he fill your spirit so that you will be honest to your last breath with the talents that the Lord Jesus Christ will give you to invest them and make them grow. It's a lot of words to come out and very prophetic. Um, and it seems like he probably knew that this was the future pope that had just been tonsured. Um, 
In his own words, I began to learn the rules of monasticism from the fathers. I started studying the books of the saints, especially those written by the great Isaac the Syrian. I felt the grace of God growing within me day by day. I was obedient to all and I took their blessings. I was very keen on serving the elders, so I spent one year serving the learned Abu Nabi Masih al-Masoudi that we talked about. I was taught Tazbaha, the psalmody, by Hegman Bakhum, who was my father in confession. So that's his, his, his FOC. Um, and he talked about, he named some monks he, that he served, some of the elders. So at this point, Abu Nabi al-Masih asked him to publish a periodical. So he's asked to write, okay? Um, he would, he would read a patristic or monastic work to prepare, and then he divided the periodical into three sections, a theological um, explanation of something, an, expert, an excerpt from patristics or the Desert Fathers, and then a narrative section that was sometimes autobiographical, and that's where we're getting a lot of these autobiographical moments, which I'm emphasizing he was told to do. Right? It wasn't like he woke up one day and he's like, I'm just going to write my life, I think people might like it. Um, that he was, he was told to. Which in itself is very telling, right? that he's obedient even to something that would have seemed weird. But also very telling because it talks about his self-confidence in the right way. Right? There's, there's, a, there's, there's a self-confidence that's just ego. Right? But there's also a sense of, of just factuality rooted in God of like, and what am I without God? Where that's the reality of it. It's not fake. It's not the Russia. It's a real sense. But anyways, that's aside. Um, he called this um, periodical the harbor of salvation. Um, so he spent a lot of his time with this father that we talked about, um, Abuna al-Masoudi. Uh, and... Um, he would have had access at this point, like Abu Namina, to the library, to reading, to a lot of manuscripts. Um, but his, the doors of knowledge were open to him, but his favorite thing was Isaac the Syrian. Um, this, this project that he was given is probably single-handedly what changed his monastic life. Um, when he encountered the ascetical homilies of St. Isaac the Syrian. Um, He was so taken by this um, that he scribed, he's rewriting the book into five volumes, um, devouring and memorizing them. And he scribed it four more times. So five times he wrote the whole book. I don't know if you guys have ever seen the volume, like it's this big fat green book, right? That's like, I don't know how many pages, I wanna say 300, 350, maybe 400 plus, I don't remember. Peter Abdelmalik probably knows, but um, he transcribed it at least five times, right? Like that's that's a lot of work. I would never, I wouldn't get through once. But um, he was vigorous, determined, consummate immersion in the thought and the world of the Syrian that it entered him, right? The more that he's studying this, he's living it, he's breathing it, he's praying it, he's thinking it. Um, it it changed him. Which shows you how you can be immersed so deeply and keep learning from something. Even every time I read the story of Pope Corliss, I'm, I'm learning something new. St. Anthony even more. Um, that every reading of the life of Anthony is like a new reading, personally, for me. Um, and the famous line of love all but be distant from all is actually from Isaac the Syrian. So his personality, his silence and solitude during this time some people start to perceive as coldness. And I'm bringing it up because, again, even though there's people who like Abuna, he doesn't have it easy. 
So because he's silent and he's to himself, his older brother came to visit, and apparently his older brother thought he was a, he himself was a big deal, um, because he writes him a letter to tell him off. Um, and we have a sense of what his brother wrote from Abu Namina's reply to him, which I also like that Abu Namina replied to him. And the reason I'm saying it is because when they say, oh, do you want to send a message to your family? He's like, no, I have nothing to say. But he also wasn't maksuf, he wasn't like weirded out if they wrote him to answer back, right? Because there's people who get very like extremist in different directions, but we'll see in Abu Namina and Pokros, he's always just very balanced, very, very balanced. So he writes back to his brother who's told him off, saying, I thank you for your warm feelings and valuable advice, and he's not being sarcastic. Um, as for me, God knows I am quite content with my life. I live as peacefully as I can with everyone, refusing to side with anyone. I live in seclusion in my cell, welcoming all who come to see me, doing my utmost and respecting all young and old. I do not interfere with what does not concern me. I go back and forth straight from the church to my cell, as well as attending to whatever task is entrusted to me. In this, I am the same man before and after monasticism. Do not be concerned about me as I am depending on God. Have you ever known anyone that trusted in God and was disappointed? Never. Right? Like, like this is not the tone I would have taken if my brother told me off. God bless the Theodore. I am not biased towards anyone, nor do I avoid some and socialize with others. Right? It's like, I'm, I'm not, I don't differentiate among the fathers, right? Um, rather, I remain in seclusion from all, even if some of the fathers feel this is a sign of bias. You should know, my beloved Habibi, that I have taken the advice of respected fathers such as Hegemon Mansur and Hegemon Botur and remained in seclusion in my cell, refusing to interfere in that which does not concern me. I found complete peace in heeding their advice. Our fathers, the saints, said, the one who sits in his cell reciting the Psalms is like a man that beholds the king, and he sits in seclusion weeping over his sins is like a man in conversation with the king. There's nothing greater than for a man to remain alone in his cell, a man here being specifically a monk, constantly begging God to grant him a fountain of tears to weep over his sins that God may forgive him. When Hegman Philip, the monastery's wakil, the superintendent, read your letter, so the monastery would read your letter first because you're not supposed to have communication. So the wakil has read the letter already. He goes, he read your letter, and he was very surprised and said, <laughs> my son, from the day you came to the monastery, I have never seen you biased against anyone nor avoiding anyone. You do not mingle with anyone, but have always been happier alone in your cell. From the first day, I did not always keep to myself, but after I dealt with all, I found that not all were suitable for conversing with. Some are of good characters and others not so much. The monastery is but a net that has caught various kinds. The Almighty God has directed me to this path of seclusion. We thank him that he has always directed our steps to the road of peace. So if this were me receiving the letter, I would have been like, Intemelek. Right? Like, you don't even live in the monastery. You're not a monk. You have no clue anything. You come for a visit and you've decided what's wrong with me and how I interact and who I should interact with. You meet this one abuna that you've known for 10 minutes and you come to me with all the advice in the world. And that's why I'm not Pope Krulos. Um, whereas this is not his tone, right? He takes very seriously everything he says. And look at these lessons that we can get just from his response, right? And some of it was very valuable to me now that I've been tonsured. Is he says, I was the same before and after. Right? There was not a pre-monk me and a post-monk me. I still dealt with all the same. 
Some people, when they put on the black, we suddenly have a new persona and everybody becomes Habibi that was not before, right? And we suddenly decide everybody and their mom needs our advice, right? Where we're just dropping pearls, where like, Aizir just, this Aizir and Abu Namina are the same, right? That they haven't changed. He says he was getting guidance about his behavior, right? He says, I went and I asked. And they said it would be better for you to behave like this, and so I did. Right? He doesn't act defensively towards his brother, and at the same time, he's not afraid to speak plainly and clear and respond. Right? But his tone's not like, no, I didn't, no, I didn't. It's, it's like, okay, thank you for advice. The reality is this, and this is why I'm doing this. Um, he doesn't even dismiss that it is a non monastic repudiation of a monastic, he accepts it. Right? He cares about the truth, if any, that his brother is writing. He's actually taking it seriously. He's like, maybe my brother is accusing me of something true. Let me actually process it. Right? This is a huge virtue. He teaches from the position that he's in as monk. And he extols a positive instead of focusing on the negative. Instead of saying, well, here's what's wrong with the monks, and here's what's wrong with their behaviors, and here's why like, it's better, blah, blah, blah. No, he says, solitude is really good. Here's what you can benefit when you're in solitude. That's where his mind goes, right? He doesn't waste his time in the fight and says, no, 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 but solitude's amazing. Who wouldn't want to be at the feet of the king, right? Instead of being like, no, my brothers suck, right? He's like, no, 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 it's not that my brothers suck. It's that my dad is amazing. I just want to be with my dad, right? It's a very different way of dealing with things than most of us. And he described that he learned his position his stance from experience. He says, at the beginning, I did converse with all. And I found that the solution, when I discovered that there were things that weren't positive, was to correct me, not my brothers. Right? The solution was that I should do this, not that I need to get my brothers to do something. But his solitude was a calling not just a choice. And we're going to elaborate on that a little bit later. Um, but we're getting a glimpse because when he has his, his solitude later on in the, in the cave, no one knows what he did in there. Right? We have no clue. So we can only get these little glimpses. Like, it seems like one of the things he does is Psalms. Right? I spoke to Winner Fa'il, his disciple, once um, about some of Pope Kurtis' practices. And he was saying Pope Kurtis was nonstop Psalms. He was 24-7. Like, it was always coming out in the car. It would be always going. Um, so I, I wonder, and the reason I'm bringing this up now is saying, well, this is where it started. Right? Where did he learn to memorize the Psalms? It started in his rooms when he'd go in there, where he said, sitting, reciting Psalms is sitting in front of the king. And so this is where it started, and this is what would carry him later on in his service. Um, we also can see that for him, a big part of his personal practice was begging God for forgiveness. And I want to emphasize here, because I think we don't always understand this, this mood behind begging God for forgiveness of sins, and it comes off as very negative, especially when you read the Gbay every day, beating upon my breast and, and God, all this kind of stuff, um, where we find it annoying. If you view it romantically, it has a different meaning, right? The analogy I like to use is imagine if like a spouse cheated on his or her spouse, and then they go and confess it to their spouse, 
right? And they beg forgiveness, and the spouse says, okay, khalas, I forgive you, right? But the person says, no, but I'm so terrible, I don't deserve your forgiveness, right? Like, how could you be so nice? I'm, I'm so bad, right? This is the mood that it's coming from, right? It's not the mood of the spouse is standing there with her arms clumping, tell me you suck, um, and, and, and begging, right? I'm like, no, you haven't said it enough times, right? It's, it's coming from the other perspective, the person saying, yeah, you don't ask me for this, but I, I don't feel right. Um, it's not where we all live all the time spiritually, but that's the mood where it's coming from. In 1931, at the age of 29, or almost 29, a month before his birthday, um, he was ordained a priest um, by Bishop Demetrius of Ilmanufeya, and again, he wept the whole time to the point that everybody was crying. And it was a big deal. I mean, you, you may have seen priests cry during ordination. Um, monks don't tend to, um, not because they're arrogant, but just because it's like almost like, it's just a passage in the monastery um, where you all, you wear white on one day, you're going to wear black on another, you're going to be a priest on another day, and then hegemon, like it's, it's like the natural evolution, right? So to them, it's just like, yeah, whatever, like, like cool, I'm going to be an abuna now, abuna ala nafsiani. Um, so that he was crying was abnormal, and that's why I think it made um, everybody cry. The Pope, who's now Ennis, the one who was Metropolitan that sent him, is now, he's now Pope. Um, and he has Abu Amina on the radar, right? He's like, this is the kid that I know, right? And so he was like, he knows that this guy's been ordained a priest, and so he asks for something very abnormal. Monks don't leave their monasteries. He wants Abu Amina to Yastirma Zabiha to receive the oblation, like the... I don't, I don't know what to call it in English, graduation. It's the first time the priest prays the liturgy himself that does the offering. He wanted him to do it in the patriarchate in Alexandria, which is definitely a statement. Um, so he summons Abu Amina to come to do that. Um, his, his, uh, Abu Amina's father, his actual biological father, um, came to attend and requested from the Pope that Abu Amina go visit the house. Right, because a monk theoretically shouldn't be visiting. Um, he initially refused, and then the Pope asked for him to go. So he went, but he didn't eat. He went, he's like, okay, I'm here. Um, and then went straight back to the cathedral. He knew himself, right? He was like, no, this is not my place, and we're not doing this Kosa thing, um, and we're not jumping into the whole, I'm, I'm back, I'm not back. I'm in, I'm in Alexandria because the Pope told me to come to Alexandria. Right? I'm, not, I'm not coming on a visit, like I graduated and I'm in Abuna and I can do whatever I want. He's very self-aware, but very little words. Um, Pope Yuenes then sent him to Halwen, to, in Cairo, to the seminary, which he had refused before, but now it's on the Pope's order, so he goes out of obedience. Pope Yuenes was doing something very nice. He was trying to reform monastic education and lay the foundations for future bishops. Right, Where he's like, no, I want a selection of... Um, of monks who are well-rounded, that are educated, that I can rely on as good teachers. So, sending Abuna Mina was his very clear, I have my eyes on this guy. Um, and here, he probably would have actually crossed paths with the now Saint Habib Girgis. Um, and by all accounts, he was incredible at his studies. He was very intelligent, which shouldn't be surprising, because he did well in school too. And here we start to see even more the beginnings of the conflicts that are going to dog him throughout his whole entire life, where you can't please anybody. 
If you're very righteous, nobody likes you. If you're very annoying, nobody likes you. There's, there's no winning. So at, the, at this seminary, he finally makes an actual friend. Um, his friend's name is Abuna Krulus, who would later become a metropolitan. Because um, as we said, the Pope had his eyes from here for bishops. Um, and together they would pray Vespers daily. And they do matins and liturgy daily. That's not normal. You guys only see that as normal specifically because of Pope Krulus. That was not a thing, right? This daily not a thing, not a thing, right? Vespers when Pope Krulus became Pope was almost extinct. Right, it was, it was, I mean, that's starting to happen now again. But um, nobody went, there'd be churches that were just closed. Priests were like, why would I go? There's nobody there. Um, so that he's doing this is already weird. And I'm saying that because people don't like weird, even when it's good weird. And so here he is at a seminary. This is the breeding ground of priests and bishops. And they're not liking that these two are praying. And they're not even a burden on anybody. Abu Namina is making the Urban himself every day. No one's being asked to do a single thing. One morning he goes to make the urban and finds that the oven has been destroyed. Right? They're that annoyed at what they're doing that they destroy the source of the urban. It might have been jealousy. It might have been that they're weirded out. Um, people don't always feel happy when people... Like, like I've met some tons where when their kids are imitating Pope Krulus and sleeping on the floor, they get worried. Like instead of getting excited, I'm like, okay, good, my kid's taking spirituality seriously. I'm not saying if you're serious, sleep on the floor. But like, I'm like, okay, it's weird, but cool that that's his way of thinking. Like, la, 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 la. Someone fix my kid, right? Um, I'm worried my dad is watching. At one point, he was like, Habibi, I think you go to church too much. Um, <laughs> but they're upset. Um, so Abu Amina did not confront he wants a solution, not a fight. Right? Again, big lesson. Do you want a solution or do you want a confrontation? So he went to the bakery across the street and asked if he could use the guy's oven. And they prayed. Um, liturgy for him was the epitome and depth of everything. He himself wrote about it once in his periodical. Um, the self-emptying of Christ, which we are going to also see in Abu Namina, um, is the liturgy, where, where Christ abandoned his lofty glory and most honorable status to release his servants from bondage of death, and through the shedding of his blood as a propitiation on their behalf, and the offering of his body on the cross, our remission for their sins, brought them unto himself. And then he chose out of his inexpressible generosity to delight believers under the visible form of bread and wine with the very same body and bloody sacrifice on the cross. This is deep theological language. This is Abu Amina's writing. Um, for those who say that Abu Amina didn't know how to teach or, or like wasn't good at sermons, he was very good at it. He just didn't do it. Um, it wouldn't have been a problem if he, if he wasn't good at it. He just he was actually good at it. Um, and then he decided, let's look for a systemic solution, a peaceful solution. Let's not fight back to this this liturgy problem. So they went to the dean and suggested that rather than their liturgy be this side thing that they're doing, that it just become a part of the seminary and that it's optional. That the seminary provide a daily liturgy if they like and, and it's not anybody can go if they like. That way it's not personal. Like he's like, let's divorce it from ourselves. If the issue is us, it's not about us. It's just liturgy, right? Which is again, beautiful solution that they accepted and it became a tradition till this day um, in the seminary. 
um, how often do we use the system for a solution? Right? Most of us want to take justice into our own hands. Right? And I don't know how many of us would have been peaceful in this situation. Right? And not like, no, we need to find out who did this, bring them to justice, and how dare they, and what do you think they're doing? And is that the conduct of a future? Like, we would be on that rant. Right? We wouldn't be like, no, 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 cover them, who cares? Pope Ioannis comes to visit. While he's there, he attends Vespers and Matins when Abun Amino is praying, and consequently, the Pope attends a sermon of Abun Amina. One sermon moved His Holiness so much that it was an automatic reaction, I need to ordain this guy a bishop. So the Pope went to the dean, and the dean's like excited, he's like, yeah, one of my grads, right? Um, and so the, the dean goes to Abuna thinking Abuna's being like, me? Um, and Abuna Mina is upset, right? He gets extremely upset. And so what's his solution? Flee. So he fled. So they talked to him one night, morning comes, Abuna Mina is a goner. Um, he went from Cairo all the way south to, Suhae, to Suhaeg, um, to St. Shinuda Monastery, because he was like, well, I want to be a hermit. And St. Shinuda is the father of hermits. Um, so let's be mutawahid like St. Shinuda. Um, this was a really bad move. Um, it's not a good way to be on the good side of the Pope. Like, he's like, oh, wow, he's so humble. It enraged him. Um, he tracks him down, um, and he exercises, he flexes his papal muscles, um, because he's in charge of all the monasteries, and says, you have no permission to stay at the monastery. Right? So he's forced out. So, and he demands that Abun Amina go to see him. Um, he goes to see the Pope. The Pope is furious. Um, Abun Amina explained to the Pope that he always wanted, even before he was officially a monk, to be a solitary, and that he viewed everything else as a distraction. And he quoted St. Isaac the Syrian that a monk should never be in the Magma and the assembly too long. Um, which speaks volumes about what he's going to be giving up when he's forced to serve. Like his heart and passion are not in the service. So the Pope calms down and said, you have two choices. You either go back to school or go back to Baramos. So he consented. Um, but he had been inspired to a cave outside of Baramos. And when he got back to the monastery, he declared his desire and his intentions to be a hermit. The elders had to assemble. They have to vote on it. You don't get just to raise your hand like, I'm a hermit now. Um, there's a communal involvement in it. Um, and they unanimously forbade him from going. They were unanimous about him being a monk, and now they're unanimous about him not going. And his spiritual father was there, and he is silent. They told him, you're only 30. You've been a monk for only five years. If people who are way older than you never made it, who do you think you are? And just like his responses to MBUNS about monasticism, you see the same spirit come out, full of humility, but also knowing what he wants and who he is. I appreciate your love and your care for me. And I appeal to you as an obedient son, asking for the opinion of his fathers who have spent many years worshiping God. You know more about the mysteries of the solitary life than me. But I also trust that the Lord Jesus Christ will prepare the narrow road that I will travel. I will be the obedient son and will not walk in any way without the guidance of my spiritual father. 
right? He didn't argue. He didn't say, yes, I can. He said, no, I know that you know more than me. I don't think that I know more than you. I'm not being presumptuous. I know that it's hard. But I also know that God is really good. But he means those words, right? Like for Abu Namina, this is not the Russia. Again, it's not this fake, cute, nice religious talk. He really means it. Right? And he goes, yeah, it is that hard, but I also know that God's really powerful, and I'm not going to be presumptuous. I'm going to get discipleship. Right? I'm appealing to that. So a spiritual father hears this. Um, and he, he in, intervenes and says to them that this man was chosen from his mother's womb for grace, and no one should stand in his way. Those are strong words, like very, very strong words. Um, this is not a normal response from a spiritual father. Um, his father steps in and says, don't let your pity or your love prevent the grace of God from entering him. So they flip on him. If it's so cool, why didn't you do it? Um, how can you push someone to take the road that you never, never took? Um, now that it's getting contentious and nobody wanted confrontation, even his spiritual father, um, this is, I think this is a very beautiful moment. They both said their, their piece, but then now even his spiritual father steps back and says, Khalas, I also, with Abu Namina, submit um, to you guys' decision um, and that whatever you guys decide, me and Abu Namina will abide by. They're silent for some time, and somehow, again, this is how when God wants something, it works no matter what. Even though they all had said no, even though Abu Namina and his spiritual father said, we'll be okay with the no, they come back with a yes. Right? They come back with a yes, and their condition is just that he maintains discipleship um, with Abuna. The life of prayer gives a confidence that most of us lack. Right? We're like, okay, I'll pray, but like, you know, right? Or when you go into it and be like, okay, other than prayer, um, what would you like me to do? Right? Whereas for Abu Namina, it was just like, I prayed, it's going to happen. Right? Like he's got a completely different experience of prayer than, than we do. Um, but he wasn't allowed to leave right away. It would be a few months before he was allowed to go to do his solitude. His desire was also attacked by his family because apparently they think they should have comments on everything. Um, and his intentions were questioned so abrasively. Oh, do you want to sit alone in a cave to seek fame? This is quotes. This is the praise of people in high esteem. What are you saying? Right? And like, again, I think, like, I'm nothing like a Bunamina. I'd have been like, dude, I was offered bishop. Right? Like, if I'm trying to seek, I already got it. I can wear a big hat. Right? This is not how Bunamina answers. He, he does answer strongly, but he, he doesn't, but he doesn't even bring up that, that, that he was nominated. Right? He doesn't even bring it up. If I was seeking glory, I would have continued in the theological school to gain fame in knowledge and studies, which in time would have been followed by higher ranks, right? Leaving out, I was offered it before I graduated because I was a big deal. Um, you said, and look at these words, like he's quoting his brother, you said, you are full of envy and cannot bear to see others in a higher rank than you. It is better and more desirable that a man escapes far away so as not to envy his brother. 
He's quote, that's what his brother said. You asked, is this a way to escape working in the monastery? You're right. This is the only like glimpse of sarcasm that came out of Winamina. I want to eat the bread of laziness. You made several other comments that I am unable to repeat. And in conclusion, you say that the grief and distress, God forbid, have revisited you. Why? Who do you think I am better than? This is where it flips on its head. Am I better than the sons of the kings who dwelt in caves, or the early fathers of whom I'm not worthy of even the dust of their feet? Certainly not. I am less than the least of the monks, the most insignificant, the most despised monk of all the monasteries, and permit me to say that I'm not even worthy to be compared to a wild donkey. This is Abunamina's response. What to make of these attacks, even from his own family, even from those familiar to him? He addresses the accusation head on, and the accusations, again, are, are very ironic. He doesn't mention it. But he's like, dude, no, I'm not even better than, I'm not even better than the donkey. And, and he means it. Right? Like, that, like again, the key point, like, it's, they're not words. And then the accusation of laziness is insane, given the lifestyle that he's living, right, and the work that he's doing, and that it's going to be more work after. But he doesn't even address it. He doesn't even defend that part. Do you know why I want to live in a cave? Now, here's where it comes out. No, you don't. You judge according to appearances. For what man knows the thoughts of another save the spirit that dwells within him? Do you really think I want to live in a cave because I'm better or more holy than others? No. I desired this path because, as one of the fathers said, a monk who finds himself faced with struggle and wars should have tranquility in his cave to conquer his evil thoughts. If you experienced the wars that faced me, you'd agree with what this father said of his own experiences. He's not seeing vanity in the cave. He's seeing purification. Right? He's saying... I want to go to a cave because I'm horrible, right? He's saying people go to the caves to be purified of their evil thoughts. If you knew how evil, this is what he's saying, if you know how evil my thoughts are, you would be like, run to that cave. That's how Winamina sees himself. Completely different, right? Like, but he also teaches without saying too much, he points out that his brother has assumed to know the thoughts of others, right? This a gentle rebuke. How often do we do this, the right and the wrong in this scenario? How often do we do the right that Abu Amina did, and how often do we do the wrong that his brother did, right? I think it's worthy of thought. He explains further, for three years, you'll probably not believe what this, what I tell you, but it's true. Whenever I thought about it, my heart palpitated, and my entire body trembled with fear. These thoughts haunted me over and over, leaving me in unbelievable dejection and despair because I lacked the courage to take such a step. Do you know the reason why I celebrate so many liturgies? I was pleading with God day and night to guide me in this path according to his will. He had been praying this whole time for three years of, Lord, let me go to this, this place. Do you know why I traveled to Soheg? It was this idea, to live in a cave and not the monastery. Do you know why I left the school? After the Pope gave me two choices, it was for the same reason, to live in solitude in this cave. This information is for you, so that you are no longer disturbed concerning this matter. 
At any rate, for your sake, I will continue to live in the monastery, beseeching the Lord Jesus to look upon with his mercy and prepare the path for me. I will continue to reveal my thoughts to the faithful fathers and seek their advice. I will study the monastic fathers and saints. I will celebrate liturgies, all in the hope that if this is from God, then may it continue. Else, if it is from the enemy, then may it fail. I'm mind blown, right? These are the thoughts of Abu Namina, our later pope. Have you ever loved God so much that your heart palpitates, is what he said, at the idea of being alone with him? This is romance, like, on another level. And, like a lover, he's defending his love with such urgency. It's like somebody's accusing him of being unfaithful to God. That's why he's upset, right? It's being saying, no, right? It's, how could I do that to this person? It's not about how you think that of me. It's, how could I do it to this beautiful person? And it gives us glimpses into how he dealt with his own personal problems, his fears, his aspirations, and the altar. They weren't liturgies to just fill time. They served a purpose for him always. And we see that he took the steps towards doing it. He always getting, always getting guidance, always revealing his thoughts. And that's, that is what gave him this, this integrity, that honesty, is why he was always fearless in his response. Right? Because he knows that what he's speaking is true. A person who's hiding is always afraid. A person who knows the truth is never afraid. But he also submits his will. He's like, and if you're right, far be it from me. Maybe you're right. And if so, may it not happen. Right? He doesn't go on strike. He doesn't say, you guys all are horrible people who don't understand me. I'm not talking to you anymore. I'm not going to pray anymore. You don't let me have my way. I'm going to stay in my cell. I'm going to sulk about it. He went about daily life. He remained a faithful member of the community. It's amazing and extremely hard. Do not be comforted, so please be comforted, do not think too much. Leave the matter in the hands of God. Man cannot obstruct what God has ordained. He believed those words. Finally, in 1934, the new year, after all the debate, he gets to go and live in solitude. He, they gave their blessings, he bade farewell, and he'd return weekly for the communal Sunday liturgy. He was forbidden from having visitors, only a laborer would come with some essentials. Um, he didn't take bread so that he wouldn't have food for more than what's needed for a day, which is very cool. But he's not afraid to take things, but he also wanted to work for things. And he also was doing something that only a monastic would understand, I think, of saying, I don't want more than el-mirs. I don't want more than what everybody gets so that nobody accuses me of living off of their labor for free. Right? It's a very, it's an act of great integrity. Um, for him to do this, in my view. Um, he's trusting the Lord who provides. If it's the Lord who instructed him to go, which is what he believed, then he believes that the Lord will also be the one to provide. He was finally alone with the alone. And he fought as the great Antony fought. There's a lot of commonality between him and the great Abba Antony. Um, he said, I felt that the enemy gathered all his forces and might to battle against my weak self. We don't know what that looked like. It probably also included physical. The enemy thought ter through terrible sounds and forceful earthquakes terrified me, and I love that he, that he was terrified. This was due to the weakness of my human nature. With God's amazing care and as if with an invisible power, I was encouraged saying, do not fear for those who are with us are more than those who are with them. Who is that said to? St. Moses, who was from that monastery. Right. So these are little glimpses that I wouldn't be surprised if it was 
Abba Moses, who told him that. These verses and similar verses encouraged me, and thus fear departed from me. The devil wanted him away from that route. Monks came begging to get him out against his wishes, so it didn't even end. They still tried getting him out of it. They, they escalated so much that they wrote to the Pope, right, being like, tell him to stop being a hermit. But this time, actually, the Pope himself intervened and said, leave him alone. Right? This is like, when God is on your side, things go well. His routine included prostrations, prayer, scribing. We have no idea. Um, some of the monks were kind of excited about it when he'd come for a week. And like, what happened? Right? Any cool stories? So some of them were excited about it. Um, he only had two visitors during that time, both of major consequence. The first being the American, um, name, uh, nameless to me right now. Um, he came with a translator because he was researching to do a book on early monasticism, and a Bedouin told him about there's some guy living in a cave, go ask him. Um, he taught him and he read from Isaac the Syrian to him, and the guy tried to give him money, but Abuna refused and spoke against the love of money and its evil and contrariness to hermit life. And the American said, I hope I can repay you someday. He will. Um, the, these, the visit wasn't an accident. Visitor number two was the Pope. Those are your two visitors. But the beauty of the Pope's visit is that the Pope came saying, I want to take the blessings of this monk. Right? This is a beautiful moment where you got the, the head of the church saying, I'm coming here to take the blessings of him. He was 80 years old and walked an hour just to take the blessings of Abu Namina. This Pope really loved him. Ten minutes, guys, and I'm done. I'm sorry, that I'm a little bit over. Because he went on God's will and not on his own after much prayer, he's not embarrassed to say how hard being a hermit was. He wasn't, and because he always said, I'm only doing this because I think this is what's right, not because I'm vain, he wasn't scared to say that it was hard. He wasn't afraid of being like, I told you so. Right? There was no that sense of self because of the meekness and humility of his... Of a, um, his desert fight is a real desert fight. Um, I'm going to skip because of, of timing because I want to get some lessons, some of the things he wrote about his desert fight. If you haven't read the book, I encourage you to. But he ends up with the result of saying, you know, um, anyone who needs to be a hermit has to have fulfilled three requirements before he can go. Number one, blameless intent they better have a solid reason for going. It better not be vanity because you'll be eaten alive. And the section that I'm not reading talks to that. He must have canonical prayers because if you're going to spend that much time alone, you better have structure. And number three, the most important, spiritual guide. Otherwise, forget it. But shortly, he'll be removed from his solitude. Um, and Abuna Mina al-Baramosi would leave his solitude to become known as Abuna Mina the Solitary. Um, but we'll get to that. But in that period, just these meditations now, like the next phase will be, the next phase of monastic life, the poor man will never see peace for the rest of his life. Um, he'll be kicked out from place to place, as we'll see. He's going to be homeless for a period. He's going to be sleeping on benches. This is who becomes our Pope. Um, but just some lessons for us of what can we take from this period. The reading of the lives of the saints, it affects how people think, how they behave, it affects your moods, right? Even though they were different from what he was in, studying the ideal, 
Setting the ideal helps you pursue the ideal in your own surrounding. Right? He used the ideal to navigate where he was at. His problems weren't in the books of Isaiah Saints. There's no, oh, and it so happened that one day Abba so-and-so wanted to be a hermit and they got together and cussed him out and told him, no, you can't. Right? That wasn't a story. It was only a Bunamina story. But the lives of the saints taught him how to deal with his story. Right? They gave him insight on how to navigate. Um, this really struck me, right? Because when I was... Um, so actually, I'll come back to that in a second. But discipleship. We always talk about Abu Amina being a disciple of Isaac the Syrian, which he was. But he was also a disciple to his father of confession and to the archdeacon that we talked about here in the monastery with Abu Nadim Sihah Masoudi as well as his father of confession. There has to be discipleship, especially in years of formation. Right? There must be. Um, some spiritual lessons. He was carried away by his ex excitement in his preparation for the monastery, right? And when, and there's this point that's made in the book that struck me, where it says that he prepared his CV. Um, and I was like, really? Um, because when I was asked for one, I was a little bit scandalized. I'm like, that's a weird request. Um, I'm like, isn't that a way of like showing off? Right, like, look at me, here's my resume. And this shows you the difference in purity of thought. I'm clearly not pure, right? To him, it was like, if I would do this for a job, wouldn't I do that for God? Right, it was, it was a very different way of thinking, right? It was, it was like, if, if, if this is like the least that we do out of respect in the world, I'm going to give far more to my God. How many of us would describe leaving the world to be with God, this was what he did, as the happiest day of your life, right? How many of you would find that happy? To what extent are you attached to things? Azar had money, he had status, he had security. He was being begged to stay at his job and in his church and by his family. Are you, but he was ready to give those things up and he was successful in those things. Do we come to Jesus or to our Lord or to the church or callings because of lack of fulfillment, right? Are we coming to the church to fill in something that I'm just not good at, right? Or am I coming to God for who he is, right? It's, it's a different thing. Are you escaping something? Those kind of reasons bring you fear, but coming in for who God is, that gives you joy and confidence, right? Um, I was also a little taken aback because I, I originally, before joining the Brotherhood, joined a monastery first, St. Anthony's in California. And I thought it would be very wrong to bring anything with me. My spiritual father ended up ordering me to take some stuff. But I was scandalized that my spiritual father told me to take stuff. I'm like, but no, I'm very egotistical. I'm like, that's not what they did in the books. Um, so it was very telling to me, it was interesting to me that he brought his endeal with him again like he's just level-headed he's not dramatic he's just very balanced right it's, it's it's a light right like it's not a symbol of my possessions right it's 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 something practical um the preparation of his cell is what you also need to think about doing your prayer room he made it his 
right? He made it very much his. The effort in fixing something, making something, right? Pouring your sweat and blood into something, it changes it. These are the things that make things valuable, right? It makes it completely different. Your prayer room can be like this, and so can your heart. If you do work on you, if you don't do work on you, you will never know the value, right? You can't complain about, you can, you can complain about your vices, but if you do work on them, you not only uproot them, but you can see the joy and coziness that can happen in your heart, right? And it's, and it's mind-blowing. Serving the elders, we already talked about that being hard. I'll skip that. Um, The responses that he gave in sending words to his family already mentioned this, but I want to emphasize again the biblical nature of it. Um, and how his reading of the Bible entered his life. Right? Like, do you read the Bible as an activity? Or are you reading the Bible to find out who God is? And are you reading the Bible to find out who you are and how you're supposed to look and live? Because of how he read the Bible, that's why it came naturally to him, right? So again, lessons that we can learn. How do you approach the Bible? If you're just like, yeah, yeah, I read my five verses, right? Then you're not going to relate. Like who would ever think reading the story of the 12 fragments that they're like, yeah, yeah, I'm like the disciples carrying the basket. That's not a normal thought, right? But it, it entered him, right? The first miracle, no comment is made. Right? Like there's, if, if it affected his thoughts, we have no idea. Right? Like, like straight up, if that was me, I'd be like, did I do that? Right? Like, maybe the Bedouins will come. And they come, many of us would be like, like maybe, right? And start testing new, like, things out. But if it, if, it, if it affected him, we have no idea. It doesn't seem like it. And as we'll see when he's Pope, it doesn't affect him. There are stories of Pope Carlos doing an exorcism while asleep, just somebody walking by his room, right? And there's one time where he even references, like, we're casting out demons. Um, and he's like, look at what the Lord is doing, right? He was so rooted in the source of it, right? That because of his humility, God can trust him. Because he doesn't rob others or God, vainly, right? Then God is like, I can trust this person with my grace, right? I'm not worried that this guy is going to use it wrongly or abuse it or flaunt it or show it off or subjugate people. I trust him, right? Right away. The name Mina. Sometimes we complain about our relationship with the saints, right? Of like, I tried, I'm talking to them, I do whatever, there ain't nothing happening, right? It's not clear before this event of his tonsuring that Merimina has ever appeared to him or spoken to him. There's nothing evident. We know later in his life that that's a thing. As silent as, as it appears, he didn't choose the name Mina. Mina did. Right? Like of all the odds, of all the ways that it could happen on the day that it happened, that was when it was. I'm saying this to say that Sometimes this is how the saints are initiating with us, right? Is that it'll be in these things first, right? It doesn't have to right away be like, hi, I'm here, right? Where sometimes it's these small 
not so subtle events where it's like, okay, um, thanks, thanks, Marimina, right? But in all of this, I'll stop here, is we're seeing the formation of a person who doesn't care to be right, doesn't care to be praised, doesn't care to be appreciated, doesn't care to stand out, doesn't care whether everybody understands him. He cares about God and nothing else, right? He flees vanity, he flees praise, and this is what's gonna carry him through the next roughly 30, 40 years of misery. Um, like, he, he goes through a lot. So we'll pick up tomorrow with his exit from the monastery, um, his ministry from within the world, um, and then the last talk will be his elevation to the throne of St. Mark. His prayers be with us, and glory be to God forever and ever. Amen.